What you assume in other people is what you get out of them. And we need institutions that assume the best in people, that rely on intrinsic motivation, that, you know, is actually all about trusting other people. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I was excited to speak with Rutger Bregman, author of the best-selling books Utopia for Realists and Humankind. He's also an occasional provocateur of billionaires at Davos and has been described as the Dutch wonderkind of new ideas, and also writes regularly for the online journal The Correspondent. We talked about how in reality most people are really pretty decent, and yet power corrupts. We also talked about what we assume about other people is what we get out of them, about how our nature is shaped by peer pressure, and that which makes us cooperate can also rip into tribalism and we explored how some of these ideas can apply to the current crises we're living through today. So I started out by asking him, why did he feel the need to write a book that reframes human nature through a more hopeful history? Enjoy. It's the most common objection you hear all the time to sort of more progressive, hopeful policy ideas. People say, oh, but human nature. You haven't taken into account human nature. Because in the end, people are selfish. In the end, people are lazy. So participatory democracy, where average citizens have a say and, you know, they they sort of try to be constructive and work together with policymakers and blah, 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 and take in the information of the experts, that's not going to work. It sounds great, but it doesn't work because human nature. And the same is true for universal basic income. Um, so I was on a book tour, you know, in, in all these countries talking about this concept and all the scientific evidence we have that supports it. Uh, which show that actually once you pull people out of poverty, um, you know, kids do better in school, crime rates go down, uh, health improves. And it's actually an investment that saves money uh, in the long run. Um, but then again and again, I would, would end up in discussion where people, discussions where people would say, hmm, that sounds interesting. And maybe it works on a local level or in this specific country with a very peculiar culture. But in the end, human nature, right? It's not going to work. Um, and that's when I realized that I needed to dig deeper and write a much more fundamental book about who we actually are as a species. Because that's also what I had started to notice. In the past 15 to 20 years, there's been this like silent revolution. So many scientists from very diverse disciplines have been moving to a more hopeful view of human nature. And I've actually started to emphasize that our true secret superpower as, our, as a species is our ability to cooperate and to work together. Uh, so I thought that I should write a book about that. One of the things I liked in the book is you, where you say you've changed your mind about a whole range of different topics, mm -hmm. um, which is refreshing and uh, doesn't happen very often. But if I'm playing devil's advocate for a second, I'm curious mm -hmm. whether you genuinely changed your mind writing this book. Were you seeking stories to validate your argument that people aren't as selfish as mm -hmm. the sort of predominant narrative um, would imply? I would sort of give you 
a copy of two books I've written in Dutch, uh, like five, six years ago. And then you'd see that I used to believe a lot of things that I'm trying to debunk in this book. So whether we talk about the Stanford prison experiment, you know, the famous experiment done by Philip Zimbardo in which supposedly just normal average healthy students turn into monsters very quickly, uh, had written about Easter Island, uh, and the story of Easter Island, how this civilization supposedly, yeah, committed suicide and how that is a metaphor for our future as what we're doing to the planet right now. I used to believe all of these things. So in many ways, writing this book has been a reckoning uh, with my own ideas. Now that obviously that happens sort of gradually. So it's quite difficult to be critical of an article that you've written yesterday. It's much easier to be critical of a book that you've written four years ago or five years ago, right? Because <laughs> there's some distance there. It has been a journey for me. I used to have a more cynical view of human nature and I let myself be convinced by the evidence that scientists have gathered in the past couple of years. So one of the things that you talk about in a number of different ways, and I wonder if you can give some examples, is people behave based on what is expected of them. Are people inherently good or are they a sort of neutral canvas upon mm. which they you know take a good or a bad path depending on the circumstances around yeah i think that both of those statements are false so we're not naturally good we're clearly not we're capable of the most terrible things right we're capable of jealousy aggression we do things as human beings that are unheard of and unseen in the rest of the animal kingdom wars slaughters ethnic cleansing, genocides, et cetera, et cetera. You don't hear about penguins doing that or, or I don't know, uh, worms or birds or whatever doing that. It's like, these are singularly human crimes. Um, but on the other hand, I think it's, if you ask the question, why did we conquer the globe, right? Why are we building pyramids and space shuttles and and you name it? Why, why not the Neanderthals? Then you you have to recognize that it's actually our, our extraordinary ability to cooperate that has made all the difference. So on an individual level, human beings are not that special. You know, we're not very smart. We're not very strong either. If you do a boxing match with a chimpanzee, you know, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but then we do have this extraordinary ability to connect with one another. And that is deeply, deeply embedded in our in our nature. So we're not a blank slate. No, we are designed by evolution, sort of in this very long blind process, but we are designed by evolution to connect. And you can see this in our faces, for example. Our faces are the most expressive in the whole animal kingdom. We have the unique ability to blush. There's almost no other animal in the uh, that, that can also do this. No, no other primate, no other mammal, but we do it. We involuntarily give away our feelings to someone else in order to establish trust. Also, our eyes are very unique. All the other primates, and there are more than 200 primate species in total, they all have dark around their eyes, uh, around their irises. Uh, so it's difficult to follow their gazes. But we, we have white sclera, white around our eyes. Uh, so it's much easier to look one another in the eyes and actually follow each other's gazes, which again helps it to establish trust. So the chimpanzees and the bonobos, they're like, uh, poker players wearing shades while we just give away our gazes to everyone. So this, these are just a couple of examples to show that, yes, we've really been designed to connect with one another. And uh, that's also one of the reasons why biologists actually talk about survival of the friendliest, which means that for millennia, it was actually the friendliest among us who had the most kids and so had the biggest chance of passing on their genes to the next generation. 
Because for us, having friends was so important if you wanted to survive, right? Nomadic and togetherers, they, they were not collecting possessions. And remember, we were nomadic and togetherers for 95% of our existence as a species. So we were not collecting possessions. No, we were collecting friends because friends helped to get you through dark times. Now, I recognize that now we live in a very different era, sort of the what you, you can call the civilized era. And so many of the, of the terrible things that we do are actually quite recent phenomena. So, for example, if you look at the history of war, it had a beginning and a quite recent beginning with the start of civilization, when we settled down, when we became farmers and city dwellers. And that triggered something within our nature, right? Because our nature is highly flexible and, you know, it's in our nature to be cultural. You could also put it like that. But so this triggered something, a sort of a groupishness, a tribal behavior that led us down a dark path. One other thing that, that, that I also write a lot about in my book is the fact that power corrupts. So nomadic and togetherers already knew this. They had very egalitarian societies where they used the power of shame yeah, to tame those who are in power, to tame their leaders. But nowadays, we often have difficulties with that. So then we have a society. We've ended up in a society where actually the most powerful man in the world can be totally without shame. And it's actually been a benefit for him. And I'm talking about Donald Trump here. Yeah, uh, sort of long, long answer short. Yes, I mean, it's in our nature to be cultural and, and we have a dark side and a, and a good side, etc. But yeah, if you zoom out, then I think you have to recognize that what makes us, us so special in the whole animal kingdom and sort of, if you ask the question, why have, have we been so successful? It's not because we're so violent. It's not because we're so smart, but because we can just work together in such a big scale. I'm curious to talk to you about peer pressure. So what I think you said in your book somewhere, what makes us cooperate can rip into tribalism. And so there's kind of the good and the bad sides of that comradeship and, and cooperation. Mm -hmm. You also talk about your love of Malcolm Gladwell elsewhere in the book. And I don't know mm -hmm. if you've listened to his uh, revisionist history podcast, but he tells a story in one episode of Wilt Chamberlain, who's a basketball player who threw free throws, you know, the, the basketball oh, yeah, yeah, penalty yeah. kicks underarm. Yeah. And even though it is proven to be a much more accurate way of, of throwing free throws, nobody else does it because it's, it looks silly or it's just yeah. not the way that people do it. So yeah. So, so what does that mean for, for your hypothesis and for, for kindness or for cooperation, the role of peer pressure? Yeah, well, this is one of the paradoxical messages, I think, of my book, is that on the one hand, I'm saying that human beings have evolved to be friendly. And on the other hand, I'm saying that this friendliness, the fact that we want to be liked, that we want to be part of a group, that we're social, that we're fundamentally social, is sometimes exactly the problem. We do the most horrible things in the name of comradeship and of friendship and of loyalty. And if you look at the heroes in our history, the people who really propel us forward, who are willing to go against the status quo, well, they're often nasty and they're unfriendly, right? So yeah, this is sort of the, it's real, the paradox at the heart of my book. Uh, if I look at the, the people who are really sort of already moving to this new view, more realistic view of human nature, and who are building schools, that believe that kids, you know, have this innate creativity and, you know, who rely on intrinsic motivation, who are, you know, building different organizations without a lot of managers and bureaucracies. If you interview these people, they can often be a little bit unfriendly, right? This is sort of the paradox uh, because they're willing to go against the status quo and they are willing to talk about the elephant in the room and, 
and etc. And that is so, so important that you have those kind of people. Well, I think there's something beautiful about paradox, which only kind of, um, if you think about the difference between humans and machines, you know, humans can somehow cope with contradictions in a way that machines can't. And I think yeah, yeah. there's something about that. You also talk several times in the book around the Blitz in the UK in World War II. I don't know if you've heard one of the consequences of the Blitz in London is the German bombs were so bad that the bombing pattern across London was essentially a random distribution. So when, when they rebuilt London after the war, they, they put a lot of what ended up becoming social housing uh, randomly distributed across the city. Uh-huh. And consequently, London is more mixed um, with waves of immigration moving to the UK, especially London after the war, than, than uh-huh. you know, other cities of equivalence sizes and scales, especially in uh-huh in America. And so a consequence of this evil, uh, you know, bombing of London is this, um, you know, comparatively successful multicultural city yeah, that sort of grew yeah. out of it. And so- but that was a political choice, wasn't it? To build social housing in those spots. And I think that we can draw an analogy here to what the current crisis means for us, right? What's interesting about moments of crisis is that decisions are being made in weeks, days, hours that, you know, have consequences for uh, months, years, decades. And so then everything depends on what the economist Milton Friedman once called the ideas that are lying around. So everything depends on sort of the work that has been done before the crisis. This is why I think, yeah, sort of the corona crisis is such an interesting moment. You see things happening that normally would take so long. For example, in the UK, how long did it take to, to get the homeless off the streets? You know, people have been debating it for years and years and years. And, oh, it was really impossible and you can't afford it, blah, blah, blah. And then a couple of weeks, you got the homeless on the streets, right? So it is actually possible. And also important, it's an investment that pays for itself. Because if you actually invest in those who are homeless, you know, you spent less on healthcare, you spent less on police, the judicial system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that's uh, that's what's so interesting about this moment. Now, I'm not necessarily optimistic, uh, for me, optimism is a, is a bit like complacency. It's about, oh, things will turn out to be all right. Uh, but I am hopeful uh, because hope is about, about the possibility of change. It impels you to act. And uh, I think there is really good reasons for hope. We've seen so many ideas that I talked about in my previous book, Utopia of Realists, have been moving into the mainstream, whether we talk about participatory democracy or universal basic income or taxing the rich. Uh, these are all much more mainstream right now than they were five or six years ago. So that's a good sign. Yeah, yeah. No, I also take hope from that and see signs, but just sort of checking my own, I guess the concern I have about my own feelings about some of mm. this is whether I'm being naive. But yeah, there, do, it, there does seem to be yeah. a groundswell around kind of participatory well, ways of working. Maybe I can say one other thing about this. I mean, we know that throughout history, those in power have often abused crisis for their own advantage, right? Burning of the Reichstag and you get Adolf Hitler. 9-11, war in Afghanistan and Iraq, massive surveillance of citizens by the government. So it's the classic playbook, right? Authoritarians use it again and again. But there are also other examples. I think a great example for Britain would be to, to point at the beverage report uh, that was not written after the war, uh, this primal text of the post-war welfare state, but it was written in 1942, while the bombs were falling on London. So, yeah, I think now is to, the time to write the new beverage report uh, that will help us to, uh, 
yeah, move to a much more egalitarian democratic society. We, we cannot wait. We don't have that luxury. Yeah, no, things are certainly moving very fast. What, you, you also talked about the need to sort of rebuild new institutions. And I, ju- I guess I was just thinking about that because there's something about institutions that are sort of permanent structures and mm-hmm. within that permanence comes power and potentially corruption. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I was, I was reading the examples that you give in the book, uh, Bert Ock, I may have pronounced that incorrectly, and Favi and some of yeah. the others. I guess I'm not convinced that these can become permanent institutions. People come together for a time to, huh. when there is a need or, you know, a crisis or whatever it might be. Um, but then that energy kind of dissipates. I'm just curious what if you have your own thoughts and observations about that hmm. and, and why you feel, yeah, talk to me about the role of institutions yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. as it links to power. That's a great question. And this is obviously the big challenge. So if I would summarize my worldview in one short sentence, it would be something like, most people are pretty decent, but power corrupts. This is, the, I think, the anarchist worldview. Even though anarchists, I think are sort of right when they talk about human nature. I think they have got the most scientific, most realistic view of human nature of all the political ideologies, but they're very bad at building institutions. And this is exactly the problem because people are shaped by institutions. They are shaped by the schools they go to. They are shaped by the, the workplaces, uh, you know, where they work, the, 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 their prisons, their democracies, etc., etc. And And it's also important to keep in mind here that in my book, I make sort of a double claim. On the one hand, I'm saying that people are basically good, that we're inclined to connect and to cooperate, and that it is in our nature to be friendly. But on the other hand, I'm also saying that what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. So if you construct this whole society, as we have done in the past 40 years, especially in the Western world, around the values of competition and selfishness, then you'll bring out the worst worst in each and every one of us. Um, And I think we need to turn that around. And it it all starts not with self-help, not with more rules for life or anything like that, but it starts with designing our institutions in a different way. And then the big challenge is obviously that, yeah, I mean, it needs to become entrenched. So in the book, I just mainly focus on case studies that uh, have cracked this, that people who've actually managed to do this. And indeed, one of the examples is the what you mentioned, Burtzorg, Neighborhood Care is the, is the translation of that. Um, and it's a hugely successful organization in the Netherlands that started in 2006 and now has around 15,000 employees of nurses who work in self-directed teams. Uh, no management, nurses who have the freedom to decide for themselves who they want to hire for their teams, what kind of additional education they need to, to schedule their work. And um, the results have been phenomenal. So lower costs, higher quality healthcare, and higher salaries for the employees as well. So I think this is an example where sort of this view of human nature has really become institutionalized in an organization. And I think that's difficult and it's been a long road. And I talk a little bit about that in the book. Yeah, that's where we need to to look at and draw inspiration from. I'm not saying that there's a blueprint that we can try everywhere that sort of what neighborhood care that's going to work, you know, for every other organization as well, whether it's in education or I don't know, in finance or whatever. But I think this is the direction we need to go in because, again, what you assume in other people is what you get out of them. And we need institutions that assume the best in people, that rely on intrinsic motivation, that, you know, is actually all about trusting other people. 
I guess the nagging thought in the back of my mind is, are these the exceptions that prove the rule? You know, over the years, Zappos was kind of famous a few years ago for adopting mm-hmm. this sort of holacracy kind of flat cooperative kind of business structure. I don't know if you remember, um, but there was a Brazilian company, Semco, years mm-hmm. ago that did something similar. These these sorts of experiments come and go. I think they are coming and going more often now than they did they were. Um, so maybe the trend is in the right direction and in that sort of direction. I, I would argue that. In the book, I obviously do, do this as well. I sort of look at the most hopeful, in, in a way, most extreme examples. So, for example, when it's about education, I talk about a school that has abolished homework and that basically gives kids almost total freedom to follow their own dreams and ambitions and rely on their intrinsic motivation. And, you know, I must admit I was quite skeptical when I went to that school but I came away as, a, yeah, as being a believer because it was really touched by, yeah, by 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 some of these kids who were, yeah, so intrinsically motivated to do things that you know they wouldn't do in a standard school. You know, one of them was learning himself how to develop software. Another was learning Korean. Yeah, I thought that was really uh, touching to see what what can happen if you design a school in a very different way. And also, by the way, mix everything, right? Mix all the ages, mix all the academic levels. Uh, One of the results here is that you have an almost complete lack of bullying in these kind of schools because bullying tends actually to be a product of hierarchical uh, institutions where you have strict rules and where you divide people in groups, you know, you sort them by age and by level, et cetera, et cetera. And then you get sort of a dynamic where you're conducive to bullying. But my point here is that you can obviously look at those expiring, inspiring examples. But if you zoom out a little bit and you look at the direction in which education has been moving, you know, basically since the 1980s and 1990s, I think it's been this direction. Uh, maybe most schools are not as extreme as this school I just mentioned. Uh, just, I mean, I'm 32 years old. And I th- if I think about my primary school that was so much more strict and boring and traditional, and then if I look at uh, the schools of uh, like mo- like the average school in the Netherlands now, it's much more based on the idea that you know kids have this intrinsic motivation. Yeah, in, in many ways, I think I think we see some positive developments there. It sounds like the school that you just talked about sounds like it has some similarities with kind of Steiner schools and that kind mm-hmm. of methodology. Yeah, um, I have some family uh, in Germany who went to Steiner schools, and there seems to be a reasonably consistent pattern. Not for everybody, but the Steiner schools are brilliant for for kids in the early years of their development. But then when they they start to sort of get into their teenage years and have to interface into their abitur, their their final mm-hmm. um, exams, and 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 into the workplace, they sometimes struggle to make that transition. This is the difficulty of these kind of schools because. What they're basically trying to do is to educate people for a different kind of society. But then that society doesn't exist yet. And then you have to make the transition, right? That, that's, that's the big difficulty. The problem we have in the Netherlands is that we've got this, I think, really good publicly financed school system, right? So we don't really have private schools. They hardly exist. Almost everyone goes to public schools. But then if you want to get financing for your public school from the government, then you need to perform well enough on standardized testing. So this is the problem with these innovative schools. If they would really do well on standardized testing, then they would have betrayed their own philosophy because that's not what they're about, right? They're about sort of teaching things that you can't really measure, you know, creativity or cooperating or whatever. But then if they don't do well on standardized testing, they're going to lose their, uh, their money, right? They can't fund the whole thing anymore. So, for example, the school I talk about in this book is in this highly 
paradoxical situation where in the first years uh, of the school, they can sort of totally follow their philosophy. But then when it's time for the exams, you know, the national exams that, that everyone has to take, they, yeah, they sort of some, suddenly have to forget the philosophy and start to work really hard to at least get a, a passing grade for, for these, these big standardized tests. It's the difficulty of, of, yeah, how do you break out of a system like that? Yeah, but also how do you kind of sustain and scale that, um, you know, at a society-wide level as well? Yeah. So I guess kind of linked to that or, or maybe moving on a little bit, but one of the first stories you, you tell in the book, which is also great, is of the real life kind of Lord of the Flies where, mm -hmm. well, maybe you can tell the story. But I was just, I'm just curious for you to hypothesize what might have happened if those boys had ended up on the island for 15 years or for 50 years instead of mm -hmm. the 15 months? I think that we human beings often become the stories that we tell ourselves. And for decades, for centuries maybe even, we've told ourselves quite cynical stories. And one of the examples here is uh, the novel Lord of the Flies by William Golding that has been so influential in the Anglo-Saxon world. You know, millions of kids were basically being forced to read it for school. And so for many, it has been this, uh, like a coming of age experience when you're 15 or 16 years old and you read this book and you're like, hmm, oh yeah, okay. Well, that's what kids are really like. I think almost everyone's read it, right? But sort of short summary, kids uh, end up on an uninhabited island. They become savages. And at the end of the novel, three of the kids are dead. And the message of the novel is, I think civilization is only a thin veneer. And below that veneer, you know, there's darkness. Now, I wondered for my book whether it had ever happened, like really happened, not in a novel, but in reality. Could I find a case of real kids shipwrecking on a real island? And then could we sort of study what, yeah, how, how they behaved? And after a long time, I actually found one example. Uh, in 1965, six Tongan kids shipwrecked on the island called Ata. They managed to survive for 50 months by working together really, really well. They worked in teams of two. They ended up in fights sometimes, but then what would happen is that one would go to the one side of the island, the other would go to the other side of the island. They would cool off a bit, come back and say sorry. And that's how they kept going until uh, they were finally rescued by an Australian captain. His name was Peter Warner. And they actually developed a lifelong friendship with him as well. And I managed to track down both the captain and two of the kids who still survive today. They're now 70 years old. You know, it was really one of the highlights of my, my, my career as a writer to, to find this real Lord of the Fly story. I'm not saying it's a scientific experiment or anything like that. I'm only saying that if human beings are really the stories we tell ourselves, uh, then maybe we shouldn't just be giving Lord of the Flies for young kids to read. Maybe we should also tell them about the one time it actually happened with real kids on a real island. But I just wonder, and this is obviously an impossible question, but so they were stranded for 15 months. You've spoken to some of them. Uh, what do you think might have happened had they been stranded for, for much, much longer? This comes back to my earlier question around yeah. permanence. They could have sustained themselves for decades there. I mean, they had sort of built a, a small farm there. There was enough food. There was enough water. I think they would have survived for a very long time. Now, obviously, what they would have tried is to build some kind of boat at some point and then try to to get away. And the question is whether they would have been successful there. Uh, they thought that they had to go to the south, uh, but they were they were wrong there. Uh, they actually managed to build uh, a small boat, uh, but that 
luckily for them, was broken in the waves, and so they had to go back to the island. If that would have been successful, they would have gone into the open ocean, and then they probably wouldn't have survived. I mean, don't get me wrong. The, the things I'm talking about in my book, especially the second half of my book, about yeah, redesigning our institutions based on a more hopeful view of human nature, I'm not saying that's easy. I think actually in many, many cases, it's really, really difficult. It's really hard. Um, one of the most radical examples in the book is about how they've organized prisons in Norway. Now, the traditional prison is, is like a warehouse and there are these tax-funded, uh, uh, taxpayer-funded institutions where people come in, often as citizens for small crimes, and they come out as, as criminals, right? You really see this in the US where you have this very high recidivism rate. In Norway, they've, they have the opposite. They have a system where people come in as criminals and they come out as citizens. And how do they do this? Uh, well, they've built institutions that don't look like prisons at all. These prisoners get the freedom to socialize with the guards who don't even wear uniforms. They have the freedom to go to the cinema, go to the library, to make music. They've got their own music studio called, uh, and, and their own music label called uh, Criminal Records. You look at it and your first intuition, your first feeling, your gut feeling is, these Norwegians have gone nuts. You know, they're crazy. What are they doing? At one time, there was a man who had killed someone else with a chainsaw and now was given the freedom to use a chainsaw to cut trees, etc. I mean, it's just really crazy. And I had a hard time believing that they were serious about this. But then you look at the statistics, then you look at the science and you look at the recidivism rate. And it turns out that this is actually the most effective uh, prison system in the whole world. Lowest recidivism rate. These Nor Norwegian prisons actually save money in the long run. So obviously it's it's expensive, more expensive to run a prison like that with a music studio and a cinema, etc. For society, it's much cheaper because in the end you have lower healthcare costs, you have lower crime, and you create these law-abiding, tax-paying citizens who have a much higher chance of actually getting a job. There's one recent study found that people who come out of a Norwegian prison have a 40% higher chance of finding a job. This really works. But it's hard. It's, it's very hard because you have to go against your own institutions. Uh, intuition, sorry. Um, but sh does this mean we should all just become like the Netherlands and Norway and Scandinavia? Is that, is that the answer? Maybe, maybe it is that it seems deeply uh, much more civilized than the UK or America or well, other I mean, countries. Or what, what's the merit of more social democracies? Well, I'm a social democrat. <laughs> And, and, and not ashamed to say so. I think that sociodemocracy uh, social is one of the greatest ideas in our history, to just have high-quality public education, to have healthcare for everyone. I think we also need a guaranteed basic income. That should be sort of the crowning achievement of, of sociodemocracy. There's one danger, though, within sociodemocracy is sort of the tendency for paternalism, to believe that you as a civil servant or you as a politician know what's best for others. At one point, I had the idea of calling my book or writing another book with the title The Anarchist State. But I think that the state needs to learn to think like an anarchist. And what that means is that you can maybe build institutions that are relatively large in terms of redistribution and spreading the wealth and giving everyone equal opportunities, but are small in terms of paternalism. 
But universal basic income is a great example here. You obviously need a centralized fiscal system in order to finance a basic income. But then you just distribute the money and give it to everyone as a, venture, a bit of venture capital. And people are totally free to decide for themselves what they want to do with it. Neighborhood care, Burtzorg, the example that we just talked about, is a bit similar. So you have a, a publicly funded organization. You're not going to say as a government, you have to deliver the healthcare in this way or in that way. No, I actually trust you as an intrinsically motivated professional that you know what's best, right? And uh, I think that is sort of the genuine third way we need to be looking for here that goes beyond sort of the standard capitalist or communist top-down thinking, but where, where you sort of have a combination of, of the two. And uh, yeah, I like to call that the anarchist state. Well, I look forward to reading that book when you get around <laughs> to writing it. I remember hearing Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia, talk years ago about the success of Wikipedia, and he mm -hmm. attributed it to five different leadership styles. Um, so anarchy, anything goes, democracy, we vote on issues, meritocracy, the best ideas bubble up, aristocracy, the people who've been in the community the longest sort of have more say, and, mm -hmm. and monarchy, ultimately, if those other four methods don't work, Jimmy Wales needs to make a decision. So do we not need some kind of pluralism between communist, capitalist, third, huh. third, third ways, ra rather than it just being a binary choice? I like that. I like that. You know, I'm not, I'm not necessarily against inequality or against power differences. I just think that the burden of proof is always on those in power to sort of show that it's legitimate. And sometimes it is. Right. So think about a family. Usually parents have more power than kids. And I think that's legitimate. Right. There are good reasons for that. Yeah. The burden of proof is always on those in power. I like to look at sort of the model of nomadic hunter-gatherers. Right. Nomadic hunter-gatherers did have power differences. They had leaders. But it was what anthropologists call achievement-based inequality. So if you were a really good hunter, then yes, it made sense to listen to that hunter and to that, that people would try to uh, learn from you. But that's like achievement-based and it's, it's temporary and it should, it's, it should always be questioned and should not be made permanent. And this is this, the distinction between what anthropologists call a status-based hierarchy, where, yeah, just because you have a certain amount of money or because you have a title, and that's, that's really dangerous because then you, you'll start to see that power, power corrupts. I think that's why I'm not sure skeptical is the right word, but uneasy about rebuilding institutions because by their very permanence, I think people could use and abuse um, the, the powers and the privileges that come from those. But I'm curious in the time that we have remaining, which isn't very long to sort of bring us to the present day and the near future, perhaps. So you mentioned Trump briefly earlier. You uh, criticized the billionaires of Davos last year. And just over the last weekend, we've had the, the Black Lives Matter protests in, in America and now around the world as well. I don't know, where do we go from here? I don't quite know what the question is. One of the things mm -hmm. I'm grappling with as part of this community called Liminal, which produces podcasts, which is 85 people, it's tiny in the grand scheme of things, but it's where do we channel our effort and our attention? And mm -hmm. there are so many causes we could tackle or there are so many issues we could address. It's hard to know where to focus and how to mobilize. What are your reflections on where do we go from here? Most important thing to emphasize is that hope is kind of a moral obligation. If you think about it, who benefits from cynicism? It's those in power, obviously. You know, they want us to be afraid and to be cynical and to believe that. Throughout history, a cynical view of human nature has always been used as a way to legitimize power. Because if people can trust each other, we need a hierarchy. We need 
generals and kings and managers and CEOs, et cetera, et cetera. I think you see, you see this playing out in the US right now, what Trump is doing when he says, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. I think that's a, he, he draws on veneer theory here again. He tries to paint a picture of a society where, where the civilization is only a thin veneer and that we need strong men like Trump to make sure that everything doesn't go to hell. In reality, obviously, the opposite is true. It's actually the Leviathan. It's those, the people in power who are behaving like savages. You know, if you look at all the police violence, I mean, we see the, the full corruption of power on, 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 on display there, while most protesters are peaceful. And uh, yeah, it's, it's so important, I think, to keep focusing on that. You don't have to be an optimist. You don't have to be a pessimist either. But I think it's important to have hope. That, that is sort of your basic attitude towards towards life in general and then think about yeah what what your own talents are and what you can contribute i like that hope is a moral obligation you know we've always had periods of change in the world in our society but then things settle down in a new in a new state in a new normal for for you know a period of time i can't help but get the feeling that this kind of instability this kind of liminality is kind of here to stay and that we just need to get better at sort of coping with that fluidity Hmm. i don't know if i'm right or i'm wrong do you have a view on that the first inclination you have as a historian when people say oh this is the most unstable period ever or it's you know it's it's most this or most that then you always tend to think like well is that really true what about the 1960s for example i mean there was way more civil unrest back then and riots and violence and terrorist attacks and you name it right so uh, we've been here before look at the uk and you compare how elites responded or or what elites thought at the beginning of the crisis. They thought that the public couldn't handle it, right? That the public couldn't handle a lockdown. That was one of the reasons why the UK was slow to go into lockdown. This is exactly how people like Churchill and his military advisors thought on the eve of the Second World War. They thought that the population couldn't handle the bombing war, that they would go nuts and that, you know, they set up all these psychiatric hospitals to treat all those people who would have mental breakdowns. Now, obviously, the opposite happens, an explosion of cooperation and altruism. But somehow, uh, yeah, those at the top keep making the same mistake. I think they often look in the mirror and they think that most people would act like they would. But that's not the case because most people are not under the influence of, uh, of power. In the end, I always like to say that history is, is the science of change, right? It shows that things are not inevitable, that they can be different, that we can totally and structurally change the way our economy and society is, is, is structured right now. And for the good or for the worse, it, it just depends on what we do. So uh, again, this is all about the importance of hope because hope impels us to act. More than anything, that's, I think, what I take from your book and from other things that are related to it. It's, it's that sort of compulsion to act. And I think mm. we're, we're sort of coming out of a century of consumerist advertising-driven uh, yeah. passivity as a, as a species. And that's, uh-huh. that's got us to where we are. So it's time to act. It's a question of in what direction and in what ways. But, um, but yes, yeah. I certainly feel more hopeful talking to you and reading your book. So thank you for writing it. And thank you for talking to me today. I, I guess my last question is just what's the one thing I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Or, or what's your final closing comments um, uh-huh. to, to wrap up this conversation? One of the things that sort of excited me while while researching this book is that we've got so much evidence of how contagious our behavior is right now. So in the midst of this pandemic, I think it's important to remember that not only the virus is contagious, but our behavior as well. But it's, I mean, we've got really good science to back this up, that we are 
in the words of Jonathan Haidt, uh, a great psychologist, he, he says that we are wired to be inspired. So if you see someone else doing something good, people get this feeling that they want to participate as well. They want to do something good as well. This is exactly the feeling that so many have had at the beginning of this crisis. I want to do something. I want to help. And is, isn't that an amazing fact about our species, that this is sort of the the gut res response we have here and that this can almost sort of pr spread like a virus in a society. Uh, I think that's a good lesson to remember right now and to yeah, basically tell yourself that you're not an isolated island, but that everything you do influences all those people around you. Thank you, Rutger. I was really drawn to what he had to say about hope being our moral duty and that we need institutions that are about trusting other people if we are to move towards a more egalitarian and democratic society. There are several links in the notes that go with this episode if you want to find out more about Rutger and some of the things we talked about. In the meantime, before we go, please can I ask that you rate and subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who you think might enjoy it as well. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community to tackle hard problems that fall between the cracks. To find out more about Liminal or to subscribe to updates or even join the community, please visit weareliminal.co. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.